Pixel Therapy is a member of the But Why Though Podcast Network. Go to butwhythopodcast.com for an inclusive geek community offering pop culture news, reviews, and podcasts. It's it's kind of the freedom to make mistakes. It's 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 the freedom to learn, and that's one of the best things about games is you can mess up and then just press restart. <laughs> and it's it's acceptable to be like, oh, I messed up. I learned from it. Let me restart and like begin again, which I think is just like kind of a cool concept that I wish that more people kind of took into real life. Learning and having fun don't have to be mutually exclusive, you know? Welcome to Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. Every other week, we bring on a guest who may or may not consider themselves a gamer to discuss the games that have made them and changed them, and all the feelings they have about our favorite pastime. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronouns she, her. And I'm your co-host, Spencer, pronouns they, them. And this is Pixel Therapy. It's time for new and noteworthies. They're new. They're new. (laughs) They're noteworthy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're going to start with our uh, Patreon monthly shout out. This is our special thank you to the folks who subscribed at the name in the credits tier or above on patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod for the month of June. And for the month of June, this special shout out goes out to Val. Thank you, Val, for your support. OG Val. Uh, we appreciate you and, uh, and your support so much. Uh, if you friendly listener want to get your name in the credits you can head over to the pixel therapy patreon where you can check out our plethora of perks that started just two dollars a month and get you a monthly bonus episode for the month of june spencer and i uh recorded a bonus episode where we chatted about video game film and tv adaptations <laughs> uh kind of a the good the bad and the ugly uh so oh and also dominus <laughs> oh yeah dominus we Not really the pizza cover the, game. the full spectrum <laughs> Not the pizza of the game. Uh, so if that sounds like something you'd like to put in your ear holes, you can pop over to patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod and sign up today for only $2 a month. Uh, in case you missed it a couple weeks ago, Spencer and I were guest hosts on episode 39 of the Cozy Robot Show, which is a fantastic podcast hosted uh, typically by Marvel Science Advisor Mike McCarg and a good friend of our show, Grace Vaughn, a.k.a. Cozy Gamer Grace. Hi, Grace. How are you? Hi. <laughs> Mike was uh, unfortunately out sick the night that we guested, but we had a fan freaking tastic time with Grace and the Cozy Robot crew chatting about safe spaces. Um, I have to say, too, like it turned out just because of Mike's sudden illness. Hope you're doing better, Mike. It was food poisoning. Everything's fine. Um, But (laughs) it was Grace's first time hosting solo. And we were just so thankful to be there with her during that. She did an amazing job. We hope you check it out. (laughs) She absolutely crushed it. And I don't think it would have been obvious to anyone that it was her first time Uh -uh. doing it solo if that was their first episode tuning in. Um, They'd be like, oh, this is just the show. (laughs) (laughs) Who's Mike? Uh, But uh, we even uh, picked up some Cozy Robot fans. Uh, So if you're here listening because you saw us on the Cozy Robot show, uh, holy cow, welcome. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Uh, We got two lovely Apple podcast reviews from a couple crossover folks. Uh, Stop reading this and listen, which is a very (laughs) clever username. (laughs) And Crimson Palish. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, Crimson, but thank you both your kind words over on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews are such a huge help to small podcasts like us and 
Also, it's just really nice to hear from folks. If you're an OG Pixel Therapy fan and you missed our appearance on the Cozy Robot Show, you should go over there and give them some love. You can find that episode on their YouTube channel or your podcast application of choice. Just search for Cozy Robot Show and we're episode 39, Safe Spaces with Jamie and Spencer from Pixel Therapy. That's us. (laughs) Cozy Robots are doing awesome work over there and we really appreciated the chance to be on their show. So go over there and support them. Yes, thank you. All right, folks, it is time to get cozy. Pull up an armchair. Feel free to lie down on the couch. And let's talk about our feelings. Spencer, what are we talking about today? Oh, my gosh, Jamie. It's another great week where we managed to play the same game. Well, what happened was (laughs) um, Ratchet and Clank, A Rift Apart, came out. And Jamie, like, blazed through it. I was slower on the uptake. I got it downloaded. I literally was starting it up. And then I checked Slack and Jamie had messaged me and she was like, not sure if this game was on your radar, <laughs> but it's this really cool little game and it feels very pixel therapy with a link to a YouTube uh, trailer. And let me just say, I was hooked. I dropped everything I was doing and I just immediately started playing this game. It is called Chicory, A Colorful Tale. Um, it's available on the PS4 and PS5 and also Steam, I believe. Uh, yeah, PS4, PS5, Mac and Windows. Uh, So not Xbox or Switch. Get out of here. Get out of here. (laughs) Oh, oh my God. This game. It's like MS Paint meets (laughs) Legend, like old school Legend of Zelda. Um, But without a lot of the, I mean, there's, there's, I would say combat, but it's Mm. not um, so punishing. Like it's a game that really seems to draw, like it really lives its inspiration as sort of a, well, let me back up. It's, it's like. You live in a world and um, in a world you, in a world where it's basically like a giant coloring book. Uh, mm-hmm. um, the world is full of artists and there is a magical paintbrush. And throughout generations, this magical paintbrush has been passed down um, from what is called wield- a wielder, someone who, who, who owns the brush and uses the brush. And that wielder is basically like, the hero or like the avatar, the unifier of this world where they leave their mark on the world, coloring it in the way they see fit. Um, and mm-hmm. the reason this wielder exists is because um, from time to time, the world is threatened by this darkness, this evil that sucks the color out of the world. And so it's up to the wielder to keep the world colored in and to provide hope to the inhabitants. Um, and you, I mean, you play a dog um, <laughs> named after your favorite food. The very first screen of the oh game asks, what is your favorite food? I typed in sushi and then I learned that <laughs> everyone in this world has an adorable name. Um, I'm and- burrito. Your burrito? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, and um, you're so you're this adorable dog and you are... Um, you work in the tower where Chicory, who is the current magic paintbrush wielder, lives. Um, and the game opens with you um, taking on the very important task of keeping her tower clean um, with your broom, armed with your broom, um, you're sweeping about. Um, and you are absolutely obsessed with Chicory. Uh, yeah. They are your hero. And... Um, I want to pause there. Uh, sort of, if there's anything you wanted to add to the kind of stage setting conversation. No, no, I, th- I think you're setting the stage well. Um, I think 
Uh, yeah, I think it can't be overstated the extent to which the whole world uh, of the game really is like everyone knows who Chicory is. Everyone knows who the wielder is. This is they are an important person. They're also someone that everyone in the community uh, will go to with with their problems, which all seem to be color related <laughs> in nature. Yeah. Um, there's there's also this interesting thing where you know, past wielders have painted their, in addition to coloring the world, they also do paintings and Mm -hmm. and their own art. But uh, as time goes on and and color slowly gets drained from the world, it has to be replaced. And so it means that one of the wielders jobs is to uh, be touching up the artwork of past wielders. So there's kind of this, this through line in the game of how much the wielders perspective and vision um, literally colors Mm. the way everyone in the community sees the world Mm. and how it colors their own history Mm. so they're really like the amount of power that the wielder holds is immense because they're really determining how everyone is going to like see their own existence and history through the lens of the wielder and and how the wielder colors it i just think that's such an interesting metaphor for like how like people with institutional power decide what our narratives are. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Th- this game's doing like, it's very cutesy yes. and it's, it's encouraging you to be creative and be artful and solve fun puzzles. Um, but there's this, like the whole narrative is really setting up these like huge metaphors, I think about society and, and human interaction. Absolutely. Under the guise of this very cute, uh, you know, sweet little game. Absolutely. And something else that, oh my God, I love, I love that read. Something else that it just building on that a bit is like, um, like we talked about each, uh, wielder becomes revered, um, Mm -hmm. their art style, the way that they make marks and color the world is exalted and seen as something to aspire to. Mm -hmm. Um, you find that in a, in this world you live in, there's, like a university where people go to train for years in art just to have the chance to be someone who could be the next wielder. Like it's something that you could train your whole life for and never be noticed. I mean, I think that's very true for the art world as well. Like, like it calls in the question why we make art. Is it just to be the pure expression and putting that out into the world? Or is there also a piece of it um, that, you know, is tied to, notions of glory and being Mm -hmm. the best or Mm -hmm. having, you know, perfect form or the right execution. Mm -hmm. Um, And the pressure that that puts on the individual artist as well, when all of these eyes are upon you, um, what does it mean to make art for yourself anymore? What, how does that kind of warp your perception of your own art when you're also taking in all of these opinions and uh, from others and critiques and um, projections constantly. Um, mm-hmm. Oh my God. So amazing. Um, I wanted to go back to that first scene of the game yeah. because um, basically it, it opens with this sort of short history of the world. And it talks about uh, from the perspective of you, the dog and talking about chicory who in your eyes is the coolest, the best artist, mm-hmm. the most awesome wielder. Um, and so you're in her, in her art room, which is covered in paintings and pots of paint and brushes and you're sweeping um, because you're basically the janitor of her mm-hmm. tower. Um, <laughs> yeah. And 
I wanted to just mention the incredible um, music from composer mm. Lena Rain, um, mm-hmm. who Jamie and I were just talking about before the recording. Um, she also did the score for Celeste. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just the music in this game is absolutely incredible. So evocative, so charming. Um, mm-hmm. Pulls on the heartstrings. Like it really, it it's such a, a perfect accompaniment, accompaniment for this game. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this very first scene, I think it's, it hooks you so quickly because it's like playing this jaunty tune as you're sweeping. You're so excited to be um, helping Chicory. And then all of a sudden you hear this big crash um, and you jump and you're like, oh no, like what was that? And then you're like, uh, okay, I'm going to go back to sweeping. And the music, uh, <laughs> like it, it gets a little slower and like a little bit more hesitant and you go back to sweeping and then you hear another big crash. And then the music starts playing again, like really slowly and sadly. And it just perfectly mirrors like the way your little character is a little like scared but just keeps going um just this this optimism and uh like i just feel like right away you feel this character's balance of not feeling special not feeling like anyone important but mm-hmm. having just this this open-minded earnest determination um i just immediately fell in love with the whole thing <laughs> yeah yeah the the main character who in my case was named burrito um <laughs> I I both loved them and also like there's so I don't know how so do we, let's let's talk about like the setup of the story or like yeah. so this is the setup of the world the setup of the story is that in that first scene there's this crashing sound crashing sound crashing sound and then the crashing sound happens again and the screen goes black and it comes back and all color has been sucked oh, out right. <laughs> of the of the screen that little detail and, yeah <laughs> and you're now existing in a black and white world and you your character goes to try to find chicory to figure out what has happened and instead of finding chicory just finds the brush sitting by itself untended and makes a decision in that moment that the world needs color so i'm going to pick up the brush and just see if i can fix fix a few things yeah. until chicory gets back <laughs> basically like yes. under this guys um, and that's that's kind of the story kind of goes from there. Um, your character, uh, you know, I think we're, we, we're going to, I think, have to spoil a few small things mm-hmm. that happen within the, I would say, the first quarter of the game. So if you really want no spoilers at all, then pr- for Chicory, then probably just skip ahead. But I think this is pretty light stor- story spoilers. Um, and, and again, they all happen within kind of that first portion, the first quarter of the game. But so your character gets the brush. You go out in the world, you do some stuff, you come back, you finally do interact with Chicory, and Chicory's like basically tells you to keep the brush. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want it. Um, but what you start discovering is that there are these, in addition to the color being pulled from the world, there's this darkness that Spencer mentioned before that is creating these really creepy looking trees and mm-hmm. roots and stuff growing everywhere that's that's starting to take over the the land and like inhabit areas and and chicory kind of leaves you to deal with it you can kind of tell when when you do find her that she's she's in kind of a dark headspace she doesn't really want to talk to you she actually kind of yells at you and tells you to get away from her Mm -hmm. um but she does tell you to keep the brush she doesn't want it back and so your character kind of de facto becomes the new wielder and 
um, embraces the challenge of, mm. well, I'm the wielder now, so I'm going to fix this. I'm going to go out there and make it happen. And it's so interesting because as soon as your character becomes the wielder, like everyone kind of knows, everyone gets the update pretty quick. Like yeah. they they see uh, they see the dog with the brush and they're like, <laughs> oh, you're the new wielder. Great. Some people are like immediately like, oh, great. You're the new wielder. Can you help me with X, Y, Z? Like, here's mm-hmm. my problem and I need help with it. And you can jump right in and start helping them. Some people are resistant to the idea of you being the new wielder. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you be like, who are you? You're nobody. Right. You don't even have skills and art. Um, but most characters are are pretty accepting and then kind of immediately just start dumping your prob- their problems on you and and the main character uh, really picks that up and like takes it in stride for a good portion of the game. They're very, they have a very can do attitude. They don't say no <laughs> to yeah. anyone. They just kind of take it on and, and keep pushing, even though they, they don't really have the, the skill set or even the knowledge of, of what they're doing. Um, and also they have this really positive attitude, but I think the game does a really good job of like, slowly underlining the character with this concept that they also don't, they have a lot of fear that they're not good enough for this. Yeah. That they want to help people, but they don't really believe that they can do this. Absolutely. I've, I identified with a lot of like, (laughs) I saw a lot of myself in the main character Mm -hmm. of the, you know, giving it a try, but there's a lot going on underneath the surface um, and a lot of self-doubt about yes. what, what they're trying to do. I don't know. Did that hit for you? Oh, yeah. Like, I think I was struck by the, like, the way that the game is set up and introduced, you almost feel like Chicory should be the hero. Um, mm-hmm. Like, this sort of perspective of the main character of the game that you're playing, not really thinking of themselves as the main character and thinking that they're just sort of helping out until the main character can step back into the role. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a dynamic that felt really fresh and, and interesting um, because I don't know that you always really get that that inner doubt that, rises so organically. Um, and, and when you talk about skill, there was something something about the game that I really appreciated was, um, so I think it would be easier to, like it's a PC and Mac game, so you can play with mm. the mouse, and I think you'd have a lot more precision with it there. Um, but I was, but you and I are both playing this game on PS5, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so trying to paint with the brush, with the with the um, with the joysticks, um, and get precision and get colors into the arrows you want isn't always easy to do, um, and so you really felt the lack of skill, um, not of your own fault, but just the way that the game is set up. Like it feels very much like a pixelated, like paint MS Paint adventure type of type of mood, um, but then the other artists in the game, like Chicory. There's a scene early in the game um, where you both uh, draw self-portraits of each other. Um, and so you get this blank piece of paper. You have your big unwieldy brush and you're just you're you're swinging it around trying to make shapes <laughs> that look uh, like Chicory. And then when Chicory shows you her picture of you, it's like a beautifully layered uh, like 
like digital illustration in this painterly style. It has all of these little details. And there's just absolutely no way that anyone picking up this game would be ever be able to create a drawing anywhere close to what the other character does of you. And it is this moment of really feeling that gulf and seeing side by side your work compared to Chicory's. And it's mm-hmm. really easy to feel what the character feels of, oh my God, I am so far out of my league. I am a janitor. I have never picked up a paintbrush. I have no idea what I'm doing. I look like the work of a, of a drunk five-year-old in comparison <laughs> to, to this, my hero, my idol. Um, immediately, Chicory is like, oh my God, I love it. And later when you go into her house, you actually can see the drawing already framed and on her yeah, wall. Yeah, I, I love that. The way they, it, all of the uh, paintings that you're asked to do or designs you're asked to make throughout the game end up appearing um, in various places throughout the game, which I just thought was so uh, so cool. I don't yeah. even know what goes into the coding of that, but it was really <laughs> impressive how seamlessly that stuff appeared around the world. Yeah, like there's there was this scene where um you you help your sister draw a logo for a donut restaurant, and then um that logo is then on the billboard outside, and you get to pass mm-hmm. by in town. Um, but I I just think it reminds you that anytime, especially in the creative fields. As soon as you start comparing your work to other people, you immediately feel like a piece of shit and like you're never going to get yes. anywhere. Yeah. Um, but there's so much art out there that that someone loves. Like, like mm-hmm. there's someone out there who is going to be a fan of your work. And I, it feels like a, a reminder that art is really what you make of it. Um, mm-hmm. And when you're truest to yourself and not trying to be someone else's idea of what a talented artist is, that's when your true creativity emerges. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, like you said, I'm playing on PS5 too. So that, that experience hit for me. I think there's, so for one thing, I realized after I finished the game uh, that on the PlayStation, you can draw using the touchpad. <gasps> with your finger and that that would actually make it a lot easier instead of using the joysticks. <laughs> but I kind of think like there's something added to the story by like forcing your artwork to be inherently kind of clumsy and bad. Yeah. But then I also know that there's a lot of folks who are playing this game and like really making really mm-hmm. beautiful things with it and kudos to them. That's <laughs> not a skill that I have, nor did I want that like time investment. I was yeah. way more interested in the story of Chicory. Yeah. But I do think there's like something extra that we got out of it by our artwork being so clumsy and bad. Yeah. Um, cause I felt that even, uh, there's some scenes that you can play out at the art Academy where they'll invite you to come be part of a class and, you know, all the students are there and they're like, Oh my gosh, like we're getting to take a class with the wielder and the teacher gives the assignment and like, I draw it and it looks like absolute (laughs) garbo. And then everyone's like, wow, I love what you did with X color. Like that looks so interesting. But there's one student in the class who's every time is like, this is bullshit. Like you're not a real wielder. Like this isn't real art form. And like your sister's in the class too. And she's like very clearly being nice because she's your sister. Mm -hmm. And some of the students are like, they're trying to figure their own shit out. So you can see that playing out. And then there's like, there's one character in the game that follows you around to different towns or like you see them at multiple places in the game and they're a genuine fan of your art. Like they think you're like, they're (laughs) to you what you are to chicory. And every time they see you, they're like, Oh my God, like (laughs) it's you. And I just love your art so much. And it really does like, yeah, it speaks to this thing of like, everyone's a critic and also like everyone has, everyone's capable of making art and it doesn't, 
it like it was just so interesting that no matter how bad the art that I created was, like it was still appreciated by people. So there is something validating in that. And then there's also something like messed up in that that just because your character is the wielder, everyone is going to tell them that mm. like suddenly their art is what's most appreciated because they're holding this specific tool that's deemed valuable <clears throat> rather than like folks having their own idea of what's good or not and well, applying that. So it's like, I think it's, it works on both of those levels or it did for me anyway. Blew my mind. Um, <laughs> it reminds me too, in the beginning of the game, when you're in Chicory's tower, there's a long hallway that's filled with um, the self portraits of every wielder who has come before. And it's, um, it's, it's like a ritual that all wielders go through where they, they paint their own self portrait. What's your mark mm, leaving mm-hmm. on the world. And what's interesting is that, um, all of the portraits are in different styles. Like some of them are incredibly hyper-realistic. Some of them are these really abstract, uh, like shape-based geometric forms. One is a stick figure. Um, <laughs> and I think it just really speaks to what you're saying about how um, simultaneously all types of art are valid, but also some may be elevated more so than others just because of the perception of who is currently the wielder. Mm-hmm. So I guess it just... I don't know, it's such such a beautiful and resonant reminder that like art is everything and also means nothing and yeah, that's okay. It's, <laughs> it's also subjective and it's also yes. fickle and it's yeah. But people live and die by it. Yep. Oh my god. Yep. It just oh my gosh, there's so much. Sorry, you're like, man, you should teach a class on this game. Um <laughs> hardly. In the first few battles, so you're so you're fighting this darkness, and you don't yet know where it's coming from. But um, you basically like you use the paint. Also, we didn't really talk about the yet yeah, the mechanics of the paint, um, <laughs> yeah. but just it creates this really creative way of puzzle solving and mm-hmm. combat. Um, Introversal, yeah. And I said like, combat is like really minimal. Like right, actually, combat in the game is isolated to there's like mm, maybe five. Yeah, like battles in the game, fights. and they're they're specifically quote yeah quote unquote boss fights. They're moments where you're specifically going and engaging and fighting against the darkness. In this, uh, the screen goes completely black, and your character will either be outlined in white or they'll show up in like negative colors. Yeah, and and you'll fight the the darkness, which manifests um, through different forms. Like I th- the first fight, it's a bunch of eyeballs. Uh, or right, maybe so it's an eyeball. That's what I wanted to touch on was the first couple battles are with these monstrous forms that kind of turn into eyes. And when mm-hmm. the eye is looking at you, it shoots you with this white hot laser beam. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like it speaks to how the gaze of an audience, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's in your head, it's your own self-talk, or whether it's people saying, oh, that's not the kind of art I like, so it's trash, or you're not good enough, or you're not ready for this. Like All of those voices that are constantly trying to tell you not to pursue a creative field, not to keep trying at your art, not to keep getting better, that your art is worth it, so that there's always someone out there who's better. Like It felt like just this... 
uh, embodiment of all of of that of that harmful gaze that limits creativity and makes people think that they're not good enough to be artists. Um, mm-hmm. So eventually, and eventually, that darkness takes more personal and literal forms. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just such a oh my god, it's so real. It's just such a real mm-hmm. feeling, and I've never seen explored in a game before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those fights too. The way they're structured, um, there's this game. I don't think. Uh, it, it shares some DNA with like Undertale mm-hmm. and the way the, I, I don't know. It's, and there's nothing specific. I could say like that reminds me of Undertale, mm-hmm. but just the way the narrative is told, the way they're storytelling through the boss fights uh, all reminded me a lot of, of the game Undertale and, and how that works. But yeah, those, those fights were really interesting. I think the, we sort of touched on this, but this, this other narrative of like, self-worth and self-confidence uh mm-hmm. like really 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 resonated for me and there was a lot of um you know again i think we start to explore this very early in the game so i don't think i'm really spoiling too much narratively narratively here but your character as they're going around the world and they're they're fighting the darkness they they keep coming back and having conversations with chicory um, who who does, uh, she gets out of her funk a little bit and she starts to give your character advice and train your character to be the next wielder. Um, but there's this constant conversation between your character and Chicory about like the pressure that Chicory felt mm. holding the brush and like how that changed her art and how she lived her whole life striving to be the wielder and how she couldn't allow herself. She didn't feel like she could allow herself to have other emotions about it. Um, you know, once she got it, she just had to carry it and there, she couldn't feel any other way about it. Mm. But like, she doubts her own abilities as an artist too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for them to like have that conversation, I think was really important. And also there's moments in the game where the game is very clearly having this conversation about, how you can both have doubt that you are able to do something and want it at the same mm. time and how the conflict, the conflict, the like internal confliction conflict. What's the word I'm looking for here? Is it confliction? Internal conflict. Uh, the internal conflict. Jesus, thank you for saving me. How that internal <laughs> conflict uh, can be really tough to navigate, especially if you are prone to thinking that you're not worthy of something Mm. and you're conflicted by the fact that you want something that you don't think you deserve or that you don't think you've earned or that you don't like you've convinced yourself you won't be good at. Mm. Um, That was a piece of the narrative that I resonated with so intensely as someone who has a ton of social anxiety, who like really tends to think the worst of myself or think that I can't do things or that I won't be good at them. So like, see that actually reflected in a game of like, like I do want to achieve things, yeah. <laughs> but I like actually like keep myself from trying because I assume that I'll be bad at it. And like mm-hmm. how that, that conflict plays out and actually prevents us from trying to do the things that we want to do or that we feel passionate about. Uh, I, I'd never seen that explored in a game like that before. I thought it was really cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that resonated so much. And I feel like too it it made me feel this awareness of how we sometimes feel like someone 
needs to give us permission to be mm. capable of those things or that mm-hmm. there needs to be some sort of, tr- uh, y- you know, that that greatness is something that you're born with or that some people have and others don't. Um, mm-hmm. That, you know, like there's this, this question, internal question that, that grows throughout the game of, you know, as the main character in the beginning of the game, after the explosions happen, you're looking for chicory, you stumble across the brush, you can't find chicory, and so you pick it up and use it. Um, would chicory have chosen you to be the next wielder, or was it just a circumstance that, were, mm-hmm. that you were in the right place at the right time? And does that, whatever, whatever, however it came to be that you and the brush came together, does that matter? Does that, does mm-hmm. that question anything about your validity to be a hero just because you weren't groomed for it or some institutional path? You didn't take all the right steps to get mm-hmm. to that place. Um, it just, it just reminds you how, I think it's set, even said within the game that, you know, greatness can come from anyone, um, but also that there's just no one right way to do anything. Yeah. And that we don't, that none of us get anywhere by constantly comparing ourselves to each other. Absolutely. I, there are conversations had between Chicory and the main character about the fact that, you know, the main character so idolizes Chicory at the start of the game and how they really put Chicory on the on a pedestal because they believe Chicory has a talent and is of a quality that they will never be at. Mm-hmm. And what, how that, that, seeing people that way is not only harmful to ourselves, but it's harmful to the individual that we're viewing that Mm. way. When we only look at someone and say like, you're just so much better than me and I'm never going to get there. For one thing, it puts ourselves down. It also puts the other person on a pedestal. And now they have something that they have an unrealistic standard that they're not necessarily going to be able to achieve. And, and in the conversations that Chicory and the protagonist have, Chicory's like, okay, yeah, I might be skilled in X, but like, I look up to you for, you know, Y, Z, and W. Like, the, yeah. you know, it's not, I'm not perfect be just because I have skill in this one area. Like, we all have something to contribute. Absolutely. And it, it's like dehumanizing to have all that pressure, all these projections put upon you, you feel like who even sees the real you because there's all these ideas in the world about who you are and what you're supposed to be. It can feel suffocating. Um, yeah. Uh, so everyone, <laughs> please go play Chicory. Um, Chicory, yeah. a colorful tale. Yeah, Chicory, a colorful tale. Um, it came out June 10th, so it's a very new game. as developed by a small team. Um, they actually kickstarted the game originally and when they kickstarted it, the game was called draw dog, <laughs> which I think is very cute, but yeah, the, the game is deceptively cutesy, um, with a really, uh, powerful narrative and yeah, really fun puzzles and gameplay and beautiful game, beautiful music. Highly recommend yeah. pixel therapy stamp of approval. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, our guest for you today, folks is Cortland. Messam. Cortland is a QA analyst working in the games industry. He's also a Unity game developer in his spare time and is currently working on a pixel art RPG called First Night Out, inspired by his first night out in the gay community. Uh, and he's in college working towards a computer science degree. Uh, why, why do all of our guests do like 17 things? <laughs> <laughs> Overachievers. Uh, 
As you'll hear in our interview, Cortland has a really unique story to share about the crooked path he took to get into games, uh, his perspective on the importance of LGBTQ narratives becoming more mainstream in gaming, and his deep reflections on privilege, hope, and despair in the Danganronpa series. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was a really pleasant conversation, and we we're just so happy to meet Cortland and have this opportunity to connect with him. I'm sure you're all going to love the interview and him, so without further ado... Here's our conversation with Cortland Messam. Hello to our wonderful guests, and thank you so much for joining us in the Virtual Pixel Therapy Studio. To start, can you share your name and your pronouns? Yes, my name is Cortland Messam, and my pronouns are he and him. Awesome. And Cortland, how do you spend your time? Um, so I'm, I feel like a very classic nerd, as in... <laughs> I spend a lot of time reading, I spend mm. a lot of time watching anime, and I spend a lot of time playing video games, <laughs> especially during quarantine. <laughs> the holy trinity of nerds. The holy yeah. trinity, yes. <laughs> I feel like books, I've I've recently had like a book renaissance. I'm currently reading this book called Death by Silver, and it's about these two Victorian detectives who are also gay, and they're like discovering that they're in love as they're trying to solve a crime. Oh, um, I love that. <laughs> I have to say, like... Um, I, I not, I think everyone who reads knows this, but just the action of physically holding the book and the way that reading each line sort of forces my brain to slow down and focus on one thing has really done wonders for my mental health. So yes, 2021, has anyone tried reading? <laughs> it's the new craze. Gotta new get craze. into it. <laughs> Have you heard uh, of books? Yeah, books. Like, what are those? So bespoke paper, <laughs> like so cute and rustic. Um <laughs> And Cortland, um, you work in games, is that right? You work in the gaming industry? Yes, I work as a quality assurance analyst for Synapse Games. Okay, so I feel like when people think about the games industry, like titles like designer, writer, developer are usually the first and only things to pop to mind. Um, but there's so many people involved in the creation of games. Like you're a QA analyst. What does that mean? What do you do? <laughs> so as a QA analyst, it's different from like a QA team member. So you'll help out with QA work and like the hard work of it, like doing the physical QA a lot of the time. But and what is, is more- QA? So quality assurance. So um, the game that I work primarily on, it's called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Madness. Um, <laughs> it's a mobile game. Uh, it's super fun. You guys should check it out. Oh, my gosh. Um, and I, um, for so for the regular quality assurance part, you're like, you're just checking the game. Um, anytime there's an update, you're making sure that any other features that were in the game are currently working. And then you're QAing and testing these um, new features to make sure that they're working. Um, And that's what like the QA team does as a whole Um, for our QA analysts, which are kind of doing is analyzing the productivity of your team, um, Mm. how efficient you are, um, how long it takes to um, either verify bugs like player reported bugs and things like that. And just kind of overall making the team a lot more efficient. Awesome. And what do you love about working in games? Um, So this is actually really new for me. I have worked in the technology industry for a super long time. Um, so for like the last five years, I've actually done a lot of project management and software engineering. And, um, over time I learned that I don't really like, like normal software engineering. Um, I think that having a love of your product and like just genuinely enjoying your product, like matters a lot. Um, before this project, I was working on an application called Coop, which is like Airbnb for freight trucking. 
oh. uh, which is like super like we were giving a lot of value to like freight truckers everywhere. Yeah. But me, um, in my tender age of 26 um, and not a driver, like I don't like to mm. drive um, and have never driven across state lines, was just not very interested in the freight trucking industry. Yeah. Um, so uh, it was actually during quarantine where I kind of had like this revelation. I was like, I just can't do this anymore. Like I can't do it. Um, I think quarantine also put me in like this mental health space where I got super like, I was like, all I'm doing is working, you know? And I'm realizing that like, I just really don't enjoy this. Um, So I've only been working in the games industry for the last five months. Um, Got Uh hired in November, started in January. So yeah, and I like it a lot. I just, um, I don't know how every company is. I think Mm -hmm. I'm super lucky to work at the studio I work at. Everyone there loves games. Um, I feel like in my old jobs and like the software um, industry, especially in the companies I was working at, it's very like, I don't know if this is the correct term, but like bro culture. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I was always trying really hard to like fit in Mm. and, um, Side note, I didn't come out until like four years ago. Mm-hmm. So I was working in the industry longer, in the software industry longer than I've been out. And I wasn't like very comfortable always being like out. Yeah. And so it was just definitely always trying to kind of like conform and stuff to like the status quo of the company, talking about things I did not care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just different here. Um, I'm lucky to also have like other queer folk that work at my company um, that are just like, it's all been virtual right now, but I just really haven't felt like at home with a company as much as I have here. And I started it during um, quarantine and haven't seen anyone from the company in a physical space, (laughs) but I love it like more than anything. So um, I think that everyone's genuine love of the product and just happy to be at the company is like something very new to me. Mm -hmm. That, that resonates a lot. Like I just, that last month, um, I work in a, a software development um, company as well. And um, for the very first time in my life, I am on a team with another Filipino person. I had never, ever in my, I mean, also tender age, I've, I've only been quote unquote working full time. Um, not, and that, and I, I say that just as a statement, not that anyone should strive, like, I co-signed that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying I've been working. I, I think there's some quotes like, um, I don't dream of labor or something. It's like, I yes. don't remember what it's from. It's like, I don't dream. What's, it, what's your dream job? I don't dream of labor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> very exactly. That. Very yes, that. very that. Um, but just even though, like you said, like we're not, it's all virtual right now. We're, we're not existing in the same space. So we haven't actually met physically. But just the fact that we are seeing each other and working together and already have this shorthand between each other that just comes about of having just some shared experience. Um, I didn't really, it didn't hit me how much that was missing from my work life until it was looking me in the face. And I was like, wow, I have never looked across the Zoom (laughs) and seen (laughs) someone like me in in a tech space. Um, And I think you also find, like when you said bro culture, um, like that sort of paragon of like, cis white heteronormativity of sort of breaking down everything into a process and standardizing everything and making everything iterable and testable. Like I think that that I like how we build software can, if we're not careful, can sort of trickle out into how we view 
systems of people and and uh, what we view as like efficiencies and things like that. I guess I'm, ta- I'm talking all over the place right now, but a lot of what you said just really resonated from my experiences working in tech as well. Yeah. And I don't know if it's like, um, because I've also recently moved. So um, mm. the big reason why I was able to find this new company, my partner, um, they also were in a position where they had to kind of more so had to move. Um, and so we moved from Miami, which is where I've lived since I was 11, originally from Philadelphia, but have been, I'm considering myself, I guess, a Miamian, um, but moved from Miami to Chicago. And I worked at a software engineering company in Miami that actually did have, um, queer folk and like gay men. Um, but the culture is also very different. So I think that I had an issue really connecting with other gay people in Miami all the time, just because our interests were different. Mm. Um, so I've liked that since I've come to Chicago and have met more queer people that, I don't know, it's, I seem, I feel more naturally accepted, mm. which is like really cool. And did you always know that you wanted to work in games? Like what was your journey to getting here? So since I was a kid, I, even if I didn't like voice it verbally to like my parents or something like in the back of my mind, I always knew I wanted to work in the game industry. I wasn't sure how, um, but I originally went, started going to school in 2012 Mm. to get my computer science degree. Uh, But unfortunately due to like bad advice from friends and then (laughs) unfortunately giving money to people that did Mm. not return money back to me, um, got into a situation where I couldn't afford it. And so Mm. then I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do now? Like, I feel like the process for getting into the game industry is not really documented. It's not like a really like, mm. oh, you follow this step-by-step process. I was kind of just like, okay, I'll learn computer science. I'll learn coding. And then I'll eventually just get a job where I'm developing video games. Um, but that plan was no longer in effect. Um, <laughs> but I was super lucky because uh, there was a coding boot camp that came around um, called WinCode that had a scholarship um, that I applied to and was lucky enough to receive and lucky enough to go to that program. And now their programming was web-based. So it was a lot of web app development and mm-hmm. website development, but it was still like, for me, at least I was like, it's a step in the right direction. Now, at least I'm learning. Um, a big thing about, I think the boot camp was the network. I got mm-hmm. to network with like a lot of people in the Miami industry. And that's how I got my first job in like project management. Um, and it was me just kind of like working through that for the, like the last couple of years and really just either trying to develop games through like Unity myself or like even like just finding your engine that you like. Like there's so many gaming engines out there. It's like a blessing and a curse because I feel like the barrier to entry into the gaming industry mm. has like been lowered a lot mm. because of the um, creation of all these different like very accessible free or super um, affordable gaming engines. Um, but that just also sent me down a hole of like, okay, why just tell me which one I should use? Yeah. Um, there's so many. <laughs> um, so I started just doing kind of like game jams through itch.io. Um, and then once my partner got a job in Chicago, um, I started applying to the jobs in Chicago and was just lucky enough to get hired. Um, I think I was yeah. just very, very, very lucky um, it was just, there happened to be a position open. Mm-hmm. They happened to like me. And I just think I'm very blessed in that. I 
wish that I could give more of like a step-by-step process of how to do it. (laughs) No, I mean, I think it's incredible because like you said, there's no one path into the games industry. And I think for a lot of folks, um, the way in is through the kinds of experiences you get uh, through a game design or development program that you access through a college where you then get connected to a network of alumni who then like it's a path that's step-by-step laid out in front of you if you are someone who's able to access that kind of institutional you know stuff yeah um and you know just the fact that you were able to network and self-teach and you know engage with these boot camp like i mean it's lucky and it's also like it we should like we shouldn't have to be lucky to fall to fall into it like i think um there's a there's a lot there and something i um something i really that stood out to me. I was reading your story a bit on your on your website, um, and you had mentioned um, you mentioned the bootcamp win code where um, you started learning. And it says after winning WinCode's pitch day with an app that you created called Socialite, you won a grant to um, this startup accelerator program called the Founders Institute to develop the app further. But you declined the Founders Institute offer to instead teach at-risk youth how to code. Um, what compelled you to reject that offer after how, like, I just feel like networking is no joke. As an introvert, I <laughs> dread networking, but know that it's like the way to get into um, a lot of these these companies and jobs. Um, and I just, I'm just curious to know, like, what was going on there internally and, and why did you make that choice? Um, for me, it was just more so coming down to, I think just how I felt at that moment. I think I was very much so like, I am happy for this opportunity to kind of take this application forward. However, one, I don't really care about it. Like Mm. um, the application I thought was a very cool idea. But again, I think that if you're kind of working on a product, at least for me, I kind of have to be, have a love for it. Um, And I was like, I just don't really have a love for this. Like I really enjoyed the process of making it. I enjoyed working with my team member. I enjoyed presenting it. Um, but I don't want to work on this for the rest of my life. I don't want to be a serial entrepreneur that's just trying to build this up just to sell it for a super high price. It just didn't really connect with me. Um, and then WinCode, they were starting this um, um, like youth program where they're like targeted to like at-risk youth. And as someone who, again, from a very young age knew that like I wanted to learn how to code, like these are the things I want to do. And the only outlet really being my technology studies kind of program I had in my school mm. that I was still very lucky to have. I went to like a um, environmental science magnet. So mm. again, like I don't think that everyone has a four-year technology studies program in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that if it wasn't for Mr. Martin, who was the teacher <laughs> of that class, um, that I would be even as interested in like as far as I am today. So it was kind of like, how can I give back and... It was like kind of a no-brainer in the moment. It was very much so like, this is just what I feel like is the right next thing to do. So let's talk about some of the games that you're working on or have made. Um, So Cortland has previously built a game called Better Together, which is this really charming top-down shooter where you get more powerful the more friends that you make, which also (laughs) is cute as hell. Um, Thank you. You can find that on itch.io. And you're also now working on a game about your first gay night out. I'd love for you to just tell us more (laughs) about this project and what it's all about. Yes. So um, 
I have been working like in developing games for a little while. Um, I wish that I, when I first started developing games, I only put them on my portfolio site. So CourtlandCodes.com. Um, but I've always made like either shooters, like um, top down kind of games that were, yeah, shooting is like kind of the main mechanic, maybe with some twist added onto it. Um, but I've always loved RPGs. Mm-hmm. RPGs are what I play the most. Um, it's like, I feel like what kind of got me into games. I was a super introverted kid at, um, when I was young and just being able to hop into an RPG and make friends without like the fear of like them yeah. hating you um, in real life <laughs> was just really great. Um, so uh, that's kind of like, I've always wanted to make RPGs and that's like, if I have my dream, that's what I'll be making for the rest of my life. Um, what inspired this was I would like for most of my games that I create to have some kind of message, some kind of like learning aspect to it. I think that games are such an immersive medium that you it's, it's next level for like what you kind of like gain from it. Like Mm. if you compare it to like TV and movies, like the interaction, like aspect of it, like you just become so immersed in that experience. I just feel like you learn a lot more. Um, So the idea behind uh, my first night out, which is the working title of the game is that when, before I came out, um, because I came out at 23, I had, I think a lot of misconceptions about Mm. the queer community. Uh, There is a lot of, things that I thought were going to be better than they were. Mm. Um, There were things that I thought they were going to be, I guess, worse. Um, There was a lot of internalized homophobia that I've had from like growing up. Um, I am first generation from um, a Jamaican family. Um, Mm. I don't know if you know very much about Jamaica, but it's like illegal to be gay in Jamaica. (laughs) Um, So like just kind of being around that rhetoric my entire life, like I didn't realize the amount of homophobia that like I had as a gay man. And I think that it's really important to kind of show like the process of unlearning that. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of like what this game is. It's, it's, it's titled like it's inspired by my first um, night out because um, in that one instance, I feel like I learned a lot, Uh, but it's more so I think a look at what I've learned since I've come out and like how to kind of like have those same learnings throughout the video game. You'll start off kind of as me with my misconceptions. And then Mm -hmm. throughout the game, you learn from like, other queer people that those conceptions are wrong and it's okay to be wrong, especially if you're trying to learn from it and you can like better yourself from it. So that's incredible. I I love this speak for a couple of reasons. One being like, I think something that Jamie and I have been talking about lately is just that it feels like, um, I think especially because of the isolation we've all been in, um, our, who, the performance of social media and engaging with social media, there's not really a lot of room to learn or to fail in the same way that uh, you used to be able to. Like like any quote unquote mistake you make, you you run the risk of you know being canceled or um, being dragged or um, you, you know having your entire personhood and life like come under attack. Um, and I'm not saying that that there aren't people out there who deserve to be held accountable or called out. Um, But there's just a lot of uh, intention and I think sometimes fear around like making sure that you're uh, projecting a certain persona or, or whatever on social media or that you are acceptable to as many people as possible. And therefore it can be hard to um, sort of just show your hand in terms of where you're at or where you might need um, to learn more. Um, and, And the other thing is that I think, 
intra-community conversations, like conversations about internalized homophobia and stuff can be really painful. Um, and so having a space that's super safe to kind of explore these things, like a game in your game, like um, exploring topics that, you know, might be harmful or, you know, inappropriate to talk about with other people. Um, there's just like a space where you can make the, you can learn and, and grow um, without hurting other people. I'm not saying that you should never talk to other people, but I just really <laughs> like, um, I, I really like that. I think it's, it's really cool. <laughs> I think it's, I, I know I totally get what you're saying. And I think that having, it's, it's kind of the freedom to make mistakes. It's, it's, it's the freedom to learn. And that's one of the best things about games is you can mess up and then just press restart. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's acceptable to be like, oh, I messed up. I learned from it. Let me mm-hmm. restart and like begin again, which I think mm-hmm. is just like kind of a cool concept that I wish that more people kind of took into real life being like, hey, maybe a lot of what I've learned up to this point is wrong. And mm-hmm. I think it's hard for so many people to become okay with that because it's like, oh, so my past 23 years of mm. living, like, it's all wrong. No, that can't be like, and it's just as, as someone who has just, I think changed a lot in my last like five years is you just kind of have to be able to look at yourself and say, Hey, like, these are the things that I know that I'm doing wrong. There's enough evidence out there to prove that it's wrong. Like you can't be blind to it. Um, just accept it and learn and grow. And that's hopefully yeah. what I hope to accomplish with this. Yeah. I think to it, especially within like gay masculinity is so hard one that toxic masculinity is intent on, on making men feel ashamed for showing emotion, for embracing parts of themselves that may not be like quote unquote manly, um, just making space to cry and to feel and um, to just embrace their full personhood. And so like, I just think it can like, it can be really hard for gay men specifically to kind of find the spaces to have these kind of conversations. And I, I just wanted to note that specifically, because I think that's, it's important. Yeah. I've, um, I agree with that. And I think that that was kind of like one of the things I didn't really love, at least, at least about a lot of the culture I was introduced to when I first came out, it was very much so like bro culture mm-hmm. with a rainbow flag on it. I don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> how, how else to say it, but it was just very much so like, yeah, you're gay, but me, especially, I feel like as a black gay man, the expectation of like this hyper masculinity that's like honestly like fetishized and sexualized in a lot of ways, like that's one thing that like I wasn't expecting when I came out at all. I was hoping that um, everyone would be, you know, just very accepting because we've all experienced some um, bit of like, prejudicing and stuff, um, just being queer. But again, like the racism that like I've experienced in the gay community, um, it sucks. Um, and just like, I was kind of like thrown back by it. Cause I'm like, Oh, like, how can you be racist? Right. <laughs> You're gay. <laughs> but obviously like that, not, they're not one in the same, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was just like back to the like hypermasculinity thing. I think that that's like a big issue. And I have friends that, are more like feminine presenting and mm. they feel, I know that they sometimes don't feel as beautiful and mm. especially if you go out to like a gay bar and just like, you know, I, I feel like, I don't, I don't know if I'm explaining it correctly, but like when you go out to gay bar, it's just like that very masculine energy. And yeah. it's just like the people that are considered hot are the more often the more masculine ones. Mm-hmm. And 
it just it just hurts me, um, especially because I've learned that I'm a lot more feminine than I ever really allowed myself to be because yeah. of fear of like hypermasculinity and like the stuff that comes with it. So I think I'm rambling a little bit, but yeah, I, I no, agree I, overall. <laughs> it's, all, it's all hitting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I also, I love this project because I feel like so often um, queer people are sort of accessories or background items and stories that are overwhelmingly cis-heteronormative like in games, in mainstream games. Um, there's a really great article by Jason Viamez for the Philadelphia Gay Times. It's called Press A, Be Gay, LGBTQ Representation in Video Games. So folks definitely feel free to look that up. But in that article, he kind of goes over um, just the kind of LGBTQ history in gaming. And he writes, while some LGBTQ video games and characters thrived in niche spaces in the 80s and 90s, the giants of the industry, Nintendo and Sega, and later on Sony and Microsoft, had very little LGBTQ representation in their games. Most of the queer characters in mainstream games of the 1990s fit into two categories, stereotypical or discreet. Oftentimes, overt homosexual content like the Leather Daddy Ash in Sega's Streets of Rage 3 was completely erased from American versions of games. In other instances, dialogue was changed to remove any sexual ambiguity, but many more characters were simply hidden in plain sight. Recognizing LGBTQ characters in games was akin to recognizing LGBTQ characters in books, films, or real life. One needed to keep track of context clues and add them up later like a digital gaydar. He literally goes on to talk about how it's really just been in the last decade or so that queer stories and equitable, like queer visibility has been breaking into mainstream gaming, like with The Last of Us, Tell Me Why, um, stuff like that. But I just feel like it's important anytime a game is being made like by and for queer people, um, because there aren't like normal games and queer games. Like we just need to keep working towards this future where queer existence in games is as much of a given as uh, straight folks, not an exception. Um, and so just a game that isn't presenting queerness like through the straight gaze or what have you is it, just really cool. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited about it. And I've kind of been inspired by the games of late. And I think just by just media as a whole, I think that queer representation has kind of exploded. I remember mm. being a kid and like secretly watching America's Next Top Model and like being like first seeing Miss J Alexander for the first time and being like, mm. oh my gosh, like who is this? Like <laughs> they are amazing. Like they are so great. And then getting caught like watching it and then having mm. people like talk crap about the person that I thought was amazing. Mm. Um, but now it's funny because like, I feel like Miss J is like an icon that like is loved by like queer people, by straight people. And I think it's just, it's just more of the time. Mm -hmm. um, but I think games deserve their time too. And I think it's happening now. Um, I, uh, my partner and I, he, he's not a very big gamer whatsoever. Um, he's a landscape architect and the <laughs> only game it's actually, it's super awesome because everything, our home and everything is beautiful. <gasps> he actually, if you see these paintings behind yeah. me, I know that no one can like hear them. He painted all of these. <gasps> he's just like super what? amazing. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, but he's not a gamer, which is kind of like, was like a big deal for me. I was like, never ever thought I would be with someone who doesn't game because it's so <laughs> yeah. central to my life. Um, but he, we watched a documentary. I think it's called J Dream Daddy. I don't want to say the name mm. incorrectly. Um, 
There is a dad dating sim called Dream the Daddy. The dad dating sim, yeah. And yeah. yeah, it's called Dream Daddy. Yeah. And we found that it was like made up by a completely queer team. And I didn't know that at first, or like a majority majority queer team. Mm. I thought it was kind of queer gay baiting in a way. I thought it was mm. like I didn't I didn't know much about the game. I just yeah. heard Game Grumps was like the publisher and I right. knew about Game Grumps and I was like, oh, I don't think that. Yeah, yeah. I had the same. <laughs> yeah. But um, after watching the documentary, he's like, oh my God, like I was totally watching you play that game. And I was like, wait, Aww. what? <laughs> yeah. um, so I just think that that's a thing too. Like I feel like he's never really been interested in games because they're always about these super hyper masculine situations, mm-hmm. like especially how the way like first person shooters have kind of taken over the industry for like a super long time. Yes. Um, and they are predominantly like male driven. Like even if you have the choice of choosing a female character, um, it's usually still like the storyline and narrative. You can just tell it's like still written by like a man that mm-hmm. didn't consult women, didn't really <laughs> yeah. do any of that. And the same, even in certain instances where you, um, can play as a gay male. I know that um, Mass Effect 2, I think was like the first game that it was like, you can ship yourself with like a male character. Mm-hmm. And I remember playing it like, I had two like save files, like one that was like my straight one that I could play like during the day when like my parents or something were watching. <laughs> and then I had like my gay one that I could do my gay ships like at night <laughs> I was watching. Um, so yeah, it's just like the, just the fact that, I'm sorry, even in those instances, like, the narrative was still like very straight. It was just right. like, oh, you have the option right. of hooking up with like a gay with a guy. It's not like you learn anything else about what it is to be gay, like in this situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just think it's just super important for us to like make our games or consult on games that have those narratives. That really resonates. Like it's like you can't just shoehorn someone being gay like a like changing an eye color into your character builder and be like we've done it we've achieved uh, lgbtq representation um like everything about (laughs) about the queer experience is unique it's not it's not i mean not that you know every there's all sorts of stories out there but i think just what you're saying you have to approach it holistically you can't just switch out this one thing and call it equitable representation Mm -hmm. um yeah. Awesome. And the idea I feel like you said of there being multiple queer stories is just super important to like my queer, my story that I'm writing in here. A lot of people may not connect with it because it's not like something that they've experienced. Mm. However, I think that just because of that, there just needs to be more. There just needs to yeah. be lots and lots and lots of different experiences mm-hmm. so that people do have the option to really, truly connect with them. Right. Uh, right. And I, I think uh, that just reminds me, like, I think, you know, a lot of people point to like Dragon Age Inquisition, which came out in like 2014 as being one of the first places with really explicit and um, like fully fleshed queer representation. They had, you know, N- NPCs that were gay um, that, like typically in games, it it would be like, oh, there's queer representation because if you're if you're a male character, this female character will date you, and if you're a female character, the same female character will also date you with the same dialogue options. But in this game, there were actual NPCs that would not date players of the opposite gender and, and were, were like explicitly queer. But at the same time, the representation you found in this games were often like the queer origin stories were based in trauma or, um, you know, like in these fantasy worlds, um, like it was like, oh, my father made 
put blood magic on me, read conversion therapy, which didn't work. And like, like it basically is still rooted in these traumatic backstories. Um, and it kind of enforces this narrative that all queer people have some sort of tragic origin um, or that queerness is inherently tied to pain. Um, and so just as you're saying, like, it's important to have more and more representation. Like I think too, just having that representation that isn't always focusing on how hard it is to be queer is just as important as, as this stuff. Yeah. And I, and I think that um, traditional media is also suffers from the same problem for like a super long time of just like there being um, just everything that happens like to the characters because of this super traumatic event that happened because they were Mm. gay. And it's like, um, I, I can't remember which, I think it was part of like the Dream Daddy documentary. Well, one of the writers was like, I just want to watch, um, she was like, she's lesbian. And she was like, I just want to watch a stupid rom-com about two lesbians. And I yeah. like, and I don't, I don't want them to have like some super tragic, like beginning. It's just like, we deserve that too. Like mm-hmm. it's, and I, I just really connected with that. And that's kind of something that I want to bring into this game. I know that Again, I'm coming into it with like wanting to teach a lot, but I also want it to be fun. Like my first night out was so fun. Mm-hmm. Like it was one of the funnest nights of my entire life. Um, so I want that to like translate to, and it's not like really to be traumatic. It's just to be like, hey, like learning and having fun don't have to be mutually excus- exclusive, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> On this show, uh, we typically ask folks to talk to us about a game um, that had an impact on their life or was really important to them in some way. Um, you brought to us the Danganronpa. Am I saying that right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> the Danganronpa Trigger Happy Havoc, or the whole Danganronpa series. You said, um, I love this series so much because it helped me get back into gaming after a super long hiatus. Um, so for folks who aren't familiar, Danganronpa, uh, it's equal parts like social sim murder mystery, courtroom thriller. Um, you, it stars Makoto, a high school student preparing for his first day at Hope's Peak Academy, a school that only takes the best and the brightest. The series surrounds a group of high school students who are forced into murdering each other by a bear named Monokuma. In order to escape, one must murder a fellow student without being discovered, get caught, and you'll be punished with death, get away with it, and everyone else is punished. So, lots going on here. Tell us, um, what, <laughs> what's your history with this series? So, um, I actually, I started playing it during quarantine and honestly, I hadn't played games for like a super long time. Um, I think the last game that I played fully before that was Persona 5 when it originally came out. Yeah. And that was, and I think that was like in 2017. Yeah. And I just like, I had just been so busy. Um, one thing I didn't mention is that I did start continuing my computer science degree too. So I'm going to school nice. full time, trying to make a game on the side. Oh my I'm god! Working full time and then also trying to live my life. <laughs> um, so for a while, like games, kind of just like fell to the bottom of my list because I just didn't have time. Yeah. Um, and then during quarantine, I just kind of started to have a little bit more time, and I was like watching like videos online, and I had kind of gotten more into like watching people do like free plays or like walkthroughs mm. more so than playing video games myself. Um, and I started watching someone play this game and I stopped it like halfway through the video. I was like, okay, wait, 
this is actually like super interesting. And I've never really been very big into visual novels, mm. um, which I think is like, it's a very big aspect of this game. It's very visual novel-esque. Um, and it's always been because I find it kind of hard to say super engaged because like of the lack of like different gameplay styles. Um, yeah. But the I think that with this game, the way that it's set up, I've always loved like kind of murder mystery kind of stuff because... I feel like I've often gotten into the situation when you're reading or like viewing media where you can just kind of always guess what's going to happen. And I like that with like murder mysteries, like you usually can't do that. Um, And I think that overall with this game, they have like this theme of hope and despair Mm. that I think resonated really strongly with me during quarantine because (laughs) I was like trying to do this big transition. I like kind of figured out that I'm like, I don't want to work in software engineering anymore. I really want to work in the gaming industry. I didn't know how, and it filled me with a lot of hope because I'm like, I think it's something I can do, but also filled me with like a lot of despair because I've been trying for so long and I had just gone through so much and I just didn't really see again an easy path to it. Um, and it's kind of cliche, but like watching these characters like <laughs> go through this very intense level of hope and despair. It's like, oh, I'm trying to deal with like finding a job in the gaming industry. You're trying not to get killed. Like I really just like kind of was like, oh, like I can buck up a little bit for that. Um, and I just think that overall, like I the the team behind it, um, I think it's Spike Chunsoft is the developer behind it. And just like the writing of it is amazing. The aesthetic um, is very anime aesthetic and mm-hmm. I'm again like a big anime fan um, and it's just like you can never really guess what's going to happen you're uh, what is it called it's subversive like mm. you, it's always like pulling the rug from out under you and mm. just it, it just made me want to play games again and, like after I mm. played the first one I bought this other two and just went through them like super fast um, and it kind of just gave me the push I needed. It kind of made me like, oh, I love this so much. Like I can like, this is why I started gaming is because of the immersion that you can get into because of the way that you can be affected by the story. Like the love that you have for the characters is very character and narrative heavy. And it's like, you love every character so much, which makes it worse when like they die. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. I think one of the crazy parts of it too is like, because you're in that situation of hope and despair and because you kind of start off with like all the other students in the same situation, you kind of empathize with them because throughout the game, you kind of learn more about people and why they like, Oh, I need to get out of here. If the only way for me to get out of here is killing someone, like I have to do it Hmm. because of X, Y, and Z. And it's just like one of those things, again, killing, I don't know if I need to say that one here, but killing is not okay. And I don't really think that it should ever happen ever. Um, but like in a video game aspect and just being able to like empathize with all of the villains because it's like you feel sad for them. Right. Because it's usually mm-hmm. some crazy backstory or a reason for getting out. Maybe there's someone out there that needs them. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's like friends. Uh, maybe it's some sort of duty that you have. Um you kind of learn about that as you play the game and you understand why they did it. It's like, I know why you did it, but I still have to like put the mystery together. I still have to uh, call you out on it because if not, then we all die, you know? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's a very interesting concept and I don't want to go too much into it because it's a very spoiler heavy game Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, that like talking too much about it. Like again, like every chapter, like people die. And so (laughs) I don't want to give it away. It's very linear. So it's not like, it's like choice based. 
Yeah, there's, uh, there was a little piece from the a review um, that Megan Farouk Manesh wrote for Polygon in 2014. And she writes, Danganronpa is hands down one of the strangest games I've ever played, and yet also is one of the most enjoyable and thought provoking. It plays with ideas I rarely get to explore in games. The desperation that drives people to kill, how quickly you'll betray your friends, loss and despair. I can't say that Danganronpa makes murder fun, but it weaves gripping gameplay and storytelling with an offbeat cast in a way that's absolutely to die for. Um, and I think just what you're speaking to, the fact that like the game has all these elements. It's a dating sim, it's a visual novel, it's mystery, it's courtroom drama, it has mini games, there's an this it's an aesthetic high school sim. Like it <laughs> like it has something for everyone and it's doing all of these things and it's it's making you laugh and it's pulling you in with with punchy and stylized graphics, but it's also making you existentially question like what drives human like carnal carnality and the what's behind the reasons we kill. Like it's doing all of that. <laughs> And I can just see how it would be really inspirational for someone who makes games because what else besides games can do that to you? <laughs> exactly. And I think one of the big points that you hit right there that I want to get to um, really fast is yeah. the way the motive aspect of it, where it was like, oh, what will drive someone to, for some reason, have to like feel like they need to kill? I think that, and this is me being super abstract with it, so try to try to follow me if this doesn't make sense <laughs> call me out on it. Um, but I kind of just like related to just like life as a whole where I think that there's a lot of privilege that people get that they aren't aware of and then when you're kind of put in this situation where you're equalized and mm -hmm. you have like the same level of hope and despair and that despair is like spiked up like a lot um, I it kind of just reminds me of just like what I've kind of gone th through growing up I'm I haven't been someone that has always had access to everything that I feel like I needed and deserved to have access to. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that there's many other people that are in that same situation and they commonly make choices that people that have a lot of access and have a lot of privilege would never make. And those people with that access and privilege don't understand that. Like, oh, like, how could you ever do that? How mm -hmm. would you ever steal? Like, how would you ever steal from someone? And it's like, they stole because they were literally starving. Like they stole mm -hmm. because their children were starving. And I think that what the game does really well is that like, we're all just like, we're all individual people. Yes. But we're also like the situation that we were born into the experiences and the way that people treat us is in the, is kind of shapes how we react to the world. And the thing about all these students is that they're the ultimate at what they do. They're like the best of the best. And yeah, some of them, a lot of them have tragic kind of like backstories, but in that moment, that first like kind of character trope, it's like, everyone's great. Everyone's perfect. Mm -hmm. um, and then kind of seeing them all stripped down from that and being like, okay, we now have completely lost control of our situation. Um, we're at the hand of someone that has all the control. How will we react? You know? And I think it just kind of shows that you, it, your, your reactions are mostly based off of like, again, your resources and what you have access to. Um, and that's why like the people end up having, that's why people end up murdering in the game. It's because they feel like this is the only way out, you know? And it's just kind of makes you empathize with people that again, killing is wrong, but makes you empathize with people that like do sometimes like not make the best decision, um, based off of like their situation. Ab absolutely. That, that resonates so much. And, and I think, uh, something that makes me think about is that, even when you play by the rules and do everything right, 
you're a part of a system that really doesn't care about the outcome of the individual. It's designed to crush you. And like, you can go after that degree, you can get that top paying job, you can, you know, shut down your emotions and be someone who just cares about getting ahead. And that's still at the end of the day, you can't win because capitalism uh, will eat you alive. And and so like, I think um, just, yeah, that resonates with a lot. With what yeah. You said. Capitalism will always eat you alive. Yeah. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cortland, it has been absolutely amazing to share space with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, where can folks keep up with your work and the games you're making? Um, so you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all at Cortland, all Cortland Messam, um, my first and last name. Um, I believe my itch.io page is also Cortland Messam. Um, Facebook as well, Cortland Messam. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you can follow me there, you can follow me, follow up on CortlandMessam.com. I'll start posting updates there soon. Um, and I also hope that once the game's a little bit further along, um, maybe in the next like month or two, I'm in my last two semesters of college. So the Ooh. coursework is crazy. <laughs> it's like, oh, like I'm trying to make a game, but I'm also taking artificial intelligence and blockchain OMG. development like at the same time <laughs> so, it's oh like, <laughs> so like there might not be a lot of movement right now um but definitely within the next couple months when things settle down a bit um i'll get moving on it again and hopefully uh, you all like what i'm making for sure amazing thank you so much for joining us on pixel therapy thank you up for today's session of pixel therapy thank you for tuning in and we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own if you want more pixel therapy come check us out at patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod where you can snag that monthly bonus episode for just two dollars a month plus opportunities to get involved with the community and influence the show directly if you're not up for contributing monetarily but you enjoyed this episode you can show your support for free by rating and reviewing us on apple podcasts and following us on instagram at pixel therapy pod That stuff is just as important, and we appreciate it just as much. Remember that Pixel Therapy is a happy member of the But Why Though Podcast Network, so you can support us by supporting them and heading over to butwhythopodcast.com. That's though with the T-H-O. Take a peek at the inclusive geek community they're building around pop culture news, reviews, and kick-ass podcasts like yours truly. And you can keep up with all of this stuff and more by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com. Finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is, we end every episode with a recommended side quest. Thank you so much, Cortland, for the recommendation. This week, we're happy to tell you about the Black Trans Travel Fund. It's a grassroots Black trans-led collective providing Black transgender women with financial and material resources needed to remove barriers to self-determining and accessing safer travel options. Since the collective launched in 2019, the Black Trans Travel Fund has provided Black transgender women with the resources they need to access methods of travel that they find more safe where they're less likely to experience verbal harassment or physical harm. The fund started in New York City, but has since spread its coverage to New Jersey, as well as supporting other Black trans-led programs, collectives, and organizations each month who are providing material support to Black trans women in their respective communities and have redistributed over $150,000 to Black trans women in need, while working to expand their programs to other states and countries super soon. Check it out and donate at blacktranstravelfund.com. Awesome. Thank you for that side quest. That is our show for today. So go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. We'll be back soon with some more Pixel Pixel Therapy. Therapy. Yeah.
at it.